You're listening to the show where you can hear New York's top newsmakers. It's the Cats Roundtable. Comes true on Sunday in New York. Good morning, New York. This is the Cats Roundtable. John Katzmatidis here Sunday morning. One great show for you today to find out what's going on in our New York tri-state area. Governor Patterson, New York, Zach Williams, Albany, Representative Peter King, Long Island, Jose Martinez. Well, what's going on with transportation in New York? Amir Karaji on real estate from The Real Deal. Dr. Sky, what's happening when you look up in the sky? And let's start off with a new report that we have, Michael Stoller, on real estate. Good morning. This is Michael Stoller, who is the host of the Stoller Real Estate Report on the Cats Roundtable. This morning, I'm very lucky to have my friend, my buddy, my mentor, Joe Farkas, who is the founder, CEO, and chairman of Metropolitan Realty Associates. Joe has been involved with real estate for close to 35 years, and he's been involved in all different aspects, real estate aspects. But the specialty that people know Joe about is that he's a industrial real estate expert. So Joe, what's really happening in the industrial market? You know, as I was noting to you the other day, a lot of these companies are laying off people. You know, then there's a question of, you know, e-commerce is slowing down, but it still looks like it's a hot business. What's really happening? Well, first, thanks for having me, Michael. I appreciate the uh, the invitation and expert is a very flattering word. I, I try to work hard at it. I pick up as I can. Nobody has come to me recently and said, Joe, I would like my packages delivered in two weeks. Please send those packages in two weeks. By the way, don't deliver my food in an hour. I'd like it nine hours from now. We're not going backwards. We're only getting deliveries faster. So with that said, the warehousing business and the distribution business is not going away. I see the sustainability of warehousing for the next several decades, even with a development, a developable pipeline. I think that warehousing is, is, is really a business that's here to stay, and there are tenants to backfill it. So you mentioned Amazon and maybe the demise of some of their employees and what's happened. I think that that is a a factor. I think that it's um, a part of the business. There's always going to be behemoths and there are always going to be leaders in an industry and there are always going to be people that ramp up and get big quick and take a lot of space. Um, but the good news is, based on my thoughts about fast delivery, there are going to always be more tenants looking to backfill space. But with that said, I think that there is... A sector of the business that I foresee and have said for a long time might be in trouble, could be um, a leading indicator of some vacancy. And that's said simply the multi-level ground up construction for last mile delivery companies in urban uh, areas where guys are building five, six story new construction out of the ground, looking to charge tenants $40, $45 a foot to cover enormous eye-popping construction pricing, 
uh, which is all ramped up over the last several years. On top of that, charge for parking. I think that there's a price where tenants say naturally, A, I can't afford that anymore, even if rent is a small part of their business. But I think more importantly, with companies like Amazon potentially on the sideline, where so many of these mega mammoth multi-level buildings were built for, that's going to put a strain on vacancy. With that said, I'm a guy that likes single story. I've said it all the time. I like it simple. I like knowing that I can divide the spaces and I like to know that I have tenants to lease space. Now, you specifically have been very bullish on Long Island City, Long Island, Nassau and Suffolk County, and recently you've gone into Connecticut. Why? Why those? Why are for those markets? Uh, for, for different purposes. The Long Island, Nassau, Suffolk play is really based on the fact that there is limited new construction. Um, there's an extremely tight vacancy rate. It's as low as 2.7% as of the fourth quarter of 2022. And there's a huge mark-to-market play that is in demand right now. Rents that were set 10 years ago at $5 a foot have experienced back-to-back-to-back rent increases of 10 to 12 to 15 to 20%, where I know I'm buying a building, it might be at a low cap rate, I know that I can release that space because of the demand and the low vacancy rate at a much higher rental rate, sometimes as high as three times the in-place rent. And even if I'm carrying the building in the first two years of a short-term, whatever remains on a short-term lease, I know I'm going to rent that space. If it's not at the tippity-tippity top of the market, it, it doesn't matter because I've covered my downside and I can rent it for less. What about the financing availability on these? I know that re- you recently refinanced a couple of buildings with your partner, Angelo Gordon. Sure. So we put together, on you're talking about uh, Suffolk County on Long Island, we put together a little three-building package of exactly the type of uh, tenancy and buildings that I'm talking about. Very well located um, industrial, single tenant industrial buildings with great ceiling heights and uh, good tenancies, but short-term, um, short-term lease terms. And we were looking at sometimes as low as 60% of uh, replacement rent. And we've seen a tremendous amount of interest from the local lending community um, of banks that recognize that opportunity to put out money, very conservative lending, and uh, there's, there's been a lot of activity for it. And we were able to do a, uh, a really nice deal with Israel Discount Bank, um, closed the last day of the year, I might even say. Okay. So where are you on 2023? I mean, Chase just came out with a survey saying that there are certain people feel they're bullish, but um, there are more people saying like 55% or of, of these leaders said that uh, they see a recession. What do you see? Um, I'm definitely in the, in the limited recession camp. I think that 2023 with interest rates continuing, continuing to rise, I think I'd have my head in the sand if I didn't think there was gonna be an impact both on the consumer and on real estate in, in general. But these are great markets that I've lived through you know, for three decades. There's always a high and a low, a high and a low. Um, I welcome the opportunity to buy 
uh, real estate today, continuing to buy real estate and thinking that, as we've seen just recently, pricing come off 30, 35% from the highs of just seven, eight months ago. There's been a real correction in the market, and we're focused on sellers that have a need to sell. Somebody that's facing a capital event that they may not have planned for, a transition in a business, maybe there's debt coming due, which is definitely going to happen where interest rates are going to triple on people. It's going to create a situation where guys are going to have to look to sell if they can't take out their whole loan based on um, you know the, 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 the increases in interest rates. Do we see the 800-pound gorilla, the ProLogix, or the other industrial companies moving it to New York at greater sustenance than they did in the past? Well, I can't ever speak for Prologis, but they are definitely the leader in the business, having having recently acquired Duke. I think that, um, I think from everything I understand about the business, they are very bullish on uh, on the industrial space, and I think they're going to continue to buy. They, they've already, they have a presence in the uh, New York metropolitan area and the boroughs particularly. What about the uh, the airport new business new uh, warehouses being built at the airport, which you alluded to before, with regard to the multi level? So the airport we're referring to JFK is right? right. That's what you're referring to. So the airport is is a great market. It's a small market. It's controlled by uh, just a few um, major players. Um, I think I think the traditional um, industrial buildings are always going to do well there. Again, I like single story because I don't need to be a pioneer. I know tenants like to come in, lease space, and understand the space they're leasing. I don't have to explain to them how do they get their truck up to the fifth floor. That makes it an easy sale. You don't have to worry about In addition, the biggest problem of the airport on the multi-level is you need more land for an access going up the... Explaining ramping to somebody who doesn't understand it, it, there's a lot of easier ways to, to sign a, a lease with a tenant. So it's, uh, it's not an easy business, but when it comes down to industrial, my friend Joe Falk is, is one of the leaders, and I'm really happy that he was here today to be with me on the Cats Roundtable. Thanks, Thanks so again. much for having me, Michael. Uh, this is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. With us today is the former uh, governor of the state of New York, uh, Governor David Patterson. Uh, Governor, welcome to Sunday morning, and there's so many things happening. Uh, where where do we start off? Mayor Eric Adams made a rather interesting statement the other day, and he basically said that the agreement in 1979 that New York City uh, would extend itself to anybody who comes into the city and certainly would provide them with shelter, that is his interpretation, but for the last... 43 years, it's been a different interpretation than the one that uh, he gave the other day. But I think with Mayor Adams, sometimes he may not use the, the right words, but he's speaking the right language. What he's saying is, here's an emergency. The federal government has decided to bring in a number of migrants, ship them out to different places, and leave to them to decide what's going to happen to them with absolutely no 
federal money. You're in, correct. In Which, the budget. By, by the thousands. By the thousands, absolutely. I mean, originally, I think the law meant if, if somebody shows up and, and uh, a family shows up and they're homeless and they don't have a word, they don't have anything, we'll take care of them because New Yorkers have a heart. And, John, what we're seeing is that fierce loyalty where loyalty crosses the line into deceit to a certain way. I mean, a number of people who've supported President Trump have been accused of doing that. But here's a, an example of where only one mayor has stood up and basically said to President Biden, if you're going to send the migrants to my city, where are the resources to help take care of them? And I think it was very brave. He's out there kind of like on a limb. The mayor of uh, El Paso, Texas, is with him at in Chicago, they seem to understand what he's talking about. And, and these few mayors, I think, are starting to create a coalition that the president is eventually going to have to face if he can't come up with the resources. Now, he's having enough trouble passing the federal budget at the same time. But nonetheless, if you're going to do something like that, you can't just send it to the states and then think that because the leader of the, city, the largest city in the state is a Democrat that they have to support you. You were the governor, and you had a lot of advice to Governor Hochul how to handle uh, the uh, the um, budget. And that, uh, I've been told that the governor of New York State has the most power of all 50 states on the, on the budget over the uh, legislature. Absolutely. And when I was governor, and I got tired of the legislature pushing me around, we would grant what they call an extender, which means that the budget doesn't pass on April 1st, which is New York's one of the few states that has an April 1st budget uh, deadline. But you extend the government maybe for another two or three weeks to give the legislature and the governor to get a chance to agree on the issues and then come back and vote on it. What I decided to do was to grant the extender but I put all the cuts that I thought needed to be made in the budget, because remember, this is 2009, 2010, John. This is when the state was in real dire straits. In 2009, our budget deficit was $21.3 billion. And the legislature, you know, was basically ready to kick the can down the road. But in the extender, my research showed me that the first extender was passed in 1981 by the late Governor Hugh Carey. And when he did that, he fixed it so that only the governor could issue the uh, extender with the cuts in it. And the legislature, if they didn't like it, could just vote the budget down. But by voting it down, they were closing down the government. And John, um, you know, I worked with him a long period of time. He was a friend of mine. But you should have seen the look on the late uh, speaker, Shelley Silver's face when I showed him what the extender was going to look like, and also uh, Senator John Sampson, who was the majority leader at the time, they weren't happy with me. But this is a device that former Governor Andrew Cuomo, when he realized I had done it, he called me up and he said, well, you know, Governor, it's great what you did, but this is your last year. I'm going to take this for a touchdown. And in the time that Governor Cuomo was in office, it was, I believe, only one late budget in the 11 years that he was there. Well, let me tell you something. Uh, governor Pataki supports you, uh, Governor, because 
he realizes that power too. I mean, if the governor can't be governor, why have the title? Exactly. And Governor Pataki, who went through some real late budgets, one that actually ended on August 5th, I believe in uh, 2004, something, something like that, I think that he really appreciated the input of the idea that the governor could just create a, a, a situation where either you vote for the extender and thus uh, you're voting for the cuts that the governor wants or you shut down the government. It's unfortunate that it came to that kind of cloak and dagger situation, but that's what we actually did. Understood. We'll catch up with you again next week. Well, I sure hope so, John. Thank you so much, and thank you for everything you've done for New York and the advice that you give other people in New York. Thank you so much. Thank you, John, and I like the advice you give me. With us today is Steve Cates, otherwise known as Dr. Sky, and he always talks to us every weekend. So when we look up in the sky during the weekend and we try to relax, we, we dream a little bit and find out what the heck is going on. Well, John, we start the program off this Sunday morning with exciting news. This past Thursday, an asteroid known as 2023BU actually passed the Earth by, get a load of this, John, only 2,000 miles. Remember, all those geosynchronous satellites are about 22,000 miles up in space. The object allegedly was between 16 and 20 feet. That's a near record. And this is interesting. It was discovered by a gentleman in Russia. His last name is Borisov. He was the only person to ever discover extrasolar comets. In other words, this guy is really good at what he does. But more importantly, John, that's exactly as if we're talking as we are now. You're in New York and I'm in Phoenix. So that's how close, and that's a small distance, don't you think, in the world of astronomy. That's pretty close. close. That's very close. That's amazing. We got a mystery of the week, John. This is interesting, too. What was the loudest sound ever heard on the planet Earth? And many people scratch their head and say, well, you know, a jet engine, John, has engine decibels of about 130 decibels. But how about this? In 1883, a volcanic eruption we know of as Krakatoa allegedly had a decibel range of 310 decibels. That's the force of 10,000 Hiroshima bombs going off. What a sound that must have been. Even 100 miles away, the sound was still at 170 decibels. The temperature on the Earth dropped and a large cloud of dust circled the earth. But they alleged they, they also say, excuse me, that people on ships, these were a crew, not a cruise ship, but like a working ship, a military ship, eardrums were shouted 40 miles away from the explosion. But going back to animals on the earth, we find out that the sperm whale of all creatures, this large animal, it can generate sounds under the ocean of about 230 decibels. These are amazing things, John. Can you imagine the force of the Krakatoa explosion? That's just off the charts. That is that is off the charts. That's amazing. It's hard to imagine uh, uh, that sound. What else is new? Well, John, we got something to talk about with the comet, this little green comet that's in the sky. We want to let everybody know that over this weekend, if your skies are clear, because the moon is not really going to interfere, it sets early, say around 10 p.m., you look toward the North Star. And if you have clear skies, find the little dipper itself, the constellation, and the two little stars that are at the end of the bowl of the little dipper. Take a pair of binoculars and scan right in that area to the right, just a few degrees, and hopefully you'll get to see this interesting comet called Comet ZTF. 
I've been watching it, John, from fairly dark skies. But people who have real dark skies listening to this show this morning, they're in for a big, big treat because this comet, as we've said before, hasn't come around since 50,000 years ago. And it is quite interesting. It gets closest to the Earth February the 2nd at a distance safely of 26 million miles. Wow, that's a big number. Anything else before we have a cup of coffee this morning? Well, John, we just want to remind always that everybody out there can learn so much more about these subjects that we talk about. And we remind them simply to go to WABCradio.com for the Dr. Sky experience, in which we're proud to have on your station not only the information that we're talking about here in detail that people can read in in blog form, but also our podcasts up there, which help people learn about all these great mysteries from astronomy, space, aviation, and weather. And we're so happy to be part of that, and we have to thank you ahead of time. Appreciate your time. Well, Steve Cates, otherwise known as Dr. Sky, thank you so much for enlightening our minds on a Sunday morning. God bless you, and God bless America. Thank you. Thank you, John, so much. You're listening to the Cats Roundtable. With us today is former Congressman Peter King to give us an update. What happened this week? And it's been a busy week for everyone. Congressman King, uh, you represented uh, Nassau County, parts of Suffolk, Long Island. You represented the people of New York. Give us an update of where do you think the people of New York are? Governor Hochul has had uh, uh, several discussions last week with with the public, uh, Mayor Adams has been out there being advocate. Give us your evaluation of where you think we are. Yeah, well, certainly a lot's been happening all over the state, uh, starting on Long Island. Uh, you know, we've had really excellent police department, excellent police commissioner, county executives like Laura Curran and Bruce Blakeman have been very tough on crime. And for the most part, things are being held under control. However, we had a situation this, uh, this week where four migrants, and these are people who came in the country illegally, uh, came, uh, they drove out from Manhattan to Nassau County, went to Roosevelt Field, there's four of them, and they walked out with $12,000 of shoplifted goods. They shoplifted the stores in Roosevelt Field, uh, over $12,000 of merchandise they stole. And uh, it turns out, though, they can't be deported because uh, even though they are here illegally, they're claiming political asylum or they're looking for asylum, and uh, they can't be removed from the country until their asylum hearing is finished. Now, this is insane. These are people who are using our country. First of all, 90%, 80% of these cases of people asking for asylum turns out to be bogus. It's just an excuse they use to uh, uh, try and stay in the country. But if they are coming here legitimately asking for asylum, uh, and yet then they flagrantly violate the law like this, I I can't imagine going to a foreign country myself uh, and I'm applying for a permanent residence in the country or for a, a political asylum, and I go around robbing stores. I mean, this is a, and it wasn't some spur of the moment, John. You always use the expression of the guy stealing a loaf of bread for his family. These are people who drove out from Manhattan to Nassau, that's Manhattan through Queens, into Nassau, uh, to Roosevelt Field to steal these goods. So this was all planned. It was a well-planned operation. And now they can stay here until they get their asylum hearing, which could be months or years ahead. And that's assuming they'll even come back for the hearing. You know, Why would they come back for the hearing? Here. They weren't, they're, they're, uh, they're people here, uh, people without a country, without a county, without a city. They don't have ankle bracelets, do they? 
nothing, no, nothing like so. that at all. And uh, they can just disappear into the woodwork, and uh, which is what happens more often than not. They disappear, uh, and mean, they don't come when, back. And uh, When me and you were talking to the police commissioner a, a while back, uh, they said that, well, every, they arrest everybody with guns. And in New York City, there's a minimum one-year sentence if you're carrying an illegal gun, a gun without a license. But if you're given a parking ticket or an AD or whatever they call it these days, why would you show up at court? Yeah, the courts are so backlogged. The uh, criminal justice system is, so, is in such a state of confusion that the odds are, uh, the odds are that unless this person ends up getting locked up again, his name is not going to appear anywhere. They can disappear and you know go into the shadows and or go in the wind, as people say it, and uh, uh, just you know get away with it. So we have to have tougher conditions, and that goes back to Governor Hochul. Uh, in the beginning, she's got to got to impress on the state legislature the importance to change the bail reform laws to change these discovery laws, to change the fact of, uh, uh, to raise the, uh, actually to lower the age for crimes. We had on the subway this this week, there was a, that uh, uh, weatherman for Fox News or for Fox 5, I guess it was. Anyway, he sees, it was one uh, fifteen in the morning, he's on the subway, and he sees four young guys, I guess 15 years old or so, uh, beating up and a senior citizen and actually putting his hair on fire. He jumped in to stop it. They beat him up. And I guess before he got out of the hospital, those kids are out of court. They're home. And because they're under the age of uh, 16, they, uh, you know, nothing really can be done to them. So this is insane. We have to get tougher with the laws as far as youth crime, as far as bail reform. Uh, also, the governor has to make it clear she's not going to allow taking away uh, police immunity. It's qualified immunity, which means they can be sued at any time. And she has to make it clear she's not going to give in. She's going to stay firm. And I think at that stage also, Mayor Adams should get involved supporting the governor. And both of them should go out to the people and make the case, saying that this state legislature, these state senators, these state assembly members are not voting to protect you. They're voting for some left-wing progressive ideological cause, which is causing uh, murder. It's causing rape. It's causing so much increase in crime and basic quality of life crimes because of this so I think Kathy Oakley, you, know, you said, John, she's a tough Irish girl. She's got to get out there and fight. Mayor Adams is a former cop. He knows what has to be done. He has to go out and fight alongside the, uh, the governor to get these things done. I think that uh, her whole governorship is up. If she doesn't win this fight with the, uh, with the legislature, with the state senate, the state senate is going to be the real governors of the state, and she's just going to be a puppet. And that would be terrible to have those people, <laughs> those left-wing progressives, to have them running New York State. You know, there's hundreds of thousands of people leaving New York, leaving New York State, New York City. It'll be nothing compared to what's going to happen if these people actually end up running the government. Thank you, uh, Congressman King, for your input and everything you've done for our country and continue to speak out for our country. And we'll catch up again real soon. Terrific. Thank you, John. Thank you. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. 
With us today is Jose Martinez. Uh, he's a transportation expert, and he's at City, New York, uh, and he's a senior reporter there. Uh, Jose, uh, many things are happening in uh, in New York. Uh, uh, congestion pricing is happening. Maybe I'm hoping not. Uh, also, the MTA um, possible shortfalls in their budget, and it looks like. Uh, Grand Central and Penn, uh, and Penn uh, Central is, is is combining to have better transportation. Can you fill in our listeners? Well, there's always something happening on the transportation beat, and uh, and thank you for having me on with you, Mr. Katsimatidis. Uh, I'm a reporter at the city.nyc where I cover transportation, and before that I was a reporter for several years uh, on air at New York One. So this project, which we're talking about here, uh, Grand Central Madison, known to others as Eastside Access, is the culmination of a long, long, long saga that stretches back uh, many years and uh, many dollars uh, to connect Long Island and Long Island railroad riders to the east side of Manhattan, not just via grungy old Penn Station, but now via the connection to Grand Central Terminal. So what you have is, and there's no doubt that this is an impressive engineering feat, some 15 floors beneath Grand Central, beneath Madison Avenue, beneath Park Avenue, beneath the famous Grand Central Terminal itself, you have now a new entryway into the city for people coming from the east, from Long Island, from Queens, uh, on the Long Island Railroad. And this has been, again, years in the making and billions and billions of dollars uh, but the completion of it certainly a prize day for the MTA and, and for those uh, officials who have pushed for this thing, uh, problematic, problematic as it may have been, they have finally reached the finish line here. When you say 15 floors below Park Avenue, that is amazing. And how much money did it take and how long did it take? Well, this goes back to 2009. And uh, when when the construction started, of course, the completion date since then was pushed back a time or two. Uh, but it's about eleven billion dollars. And again, it's a, an engineering feat because uh, this is how it was once described to me by a, a former top official at the MTA, sort of the the secret mega project. While people were having uh, a glass of wine in the food court at Grand Central or what have you. Uh, Several stories beneath them, uh, you had this project being carved out of Manhattan bedrock and connecting the Queens uh, via a tunnel, the 63rd Street Tunnel, and opening up a new passageway for commuters on the Long Island Railroad who now have an entry point to the east side of Manhattan. A pricey one, but it's not Penn Well, Station. I mean, I think that's wonderful because uh, does that mean – uh, when the Long Island Railroad comes in, it, it, it stops first at Grand Central, or you have to go to Penn Central to come back? Well, you, you, have, you have both options. So it depends where you're coming from, what line you're on, but you now have the chance of a uh, shot into Grand Central uh, instead of taking one into Penn Station. But you have both options now, and eventually what the MTA is planning to do uh, through what's known as the Penn Access Project, is to have a connection to Penn Station on the west side of Manhattan uh, for Metro North. That would also be a first. Uh, so that would be four new stations in the Bronx for Metro North, 
and then a new entry in the Penn Station uh, for Metro North riders. So you're seeing some changes on the commuter railroads and significant completion of uh, a mega project, uh, albeit one that arrives uh, a little off schedule. Uh, what other news you have for uh, our train riders or tra- transportation? Congestion pricing. I think it's the worst thing that could happen in Manhattan because, you know, it's just going to make Manhattan even pricier. What say you on that? That has been put forward and is slow rolling its way forward, very slowly rolling its way forward, is the congestion pricing where riders, drivers rather, entering the most congested parts of Manhattan, south of 60th Street, uh, would be told with the money, again, being put toward transit improvements. So it's a, it's a, um, it's not been tried in this country. It's been, it's been tried in other cities in Stockholm, in London. Uh, I believe a few others as well. Uh, it's never going to be popular with, uh, many drivers. Uh, but for the purpose of easing congestion, uh, lightening the load on the environment, going a little greener and, you know, certainly not, at uh, least raising billions of dollars for the MTA, that's why it's there. Now, it's been delayed through multiple presidential administrations. Uh, it has slow rolled its way through the process. Um, at, at this point, I believe Governor Hochul has said it, it's on, on pace to perhaps begin by 2024. So uh, that's, that's where we stand with um, congestion pricing. But the MTA... You know, Beyond that, has uh, of financial problems uh, that it faces uh, in terms of the money that it needs to uh, fill massive budget gaps uh, in the coming years. Uh, this is as only 65% of the ridership has come back from pre-pandemic levels uh, for a system that depends a lot on revenue from the fare box. So if those riders don't come back, the MTA is, is looking, and this is for operation operational budget purposes only, not for capital. But the MTA is, is looking at some big-time problems. There's no doubt about it that uh, it hasn't recovered, and it has a ways to go. Jose Martinez, uh, I want to thank you for bringing all New Yorkers up to date. Is there anything else you want to tell them? Keep listening, keep riding, and, uh, you know, hopefully good things ahead for the transportation system. It's always a, an interesting world to cover. I've been doing it a long time, and uh, please check out our work at thecity.nyc. Well, thank you so much for bringing us uh, up to date, and we'll catch up with you again real soon. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Gotham City had Batman. New York City has the Catman. You're listening to the Cats Roundtable. I'm back. There's so many things happening in the real estate industry uh, uh, in New York and, and, and in Florida and New Jersey. Uh, we'd like to get an update of uh, what's going on. Uh, construction seems to be at an all-time low uh, because in New York, let's take New York first. Uh, there's no incentives. The 421A, which gives incentives from the city and the state uh, to build new properties, uh, has gone away. And and, uh, and we don't really know if it's going to be in a new budget. And uh, interest rates on construction are the highest ever. Uh, and, right. home, and home sales. Why would anybody give up their home 
if they have a 3% interest rate versus buying a new home and paying 6 or 7 So, Amir, it's your, 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 your floor to tell us. Listen, I think it's important to look at it in uh, context. You know, um, you know, from 2020, which was a very slow year for construction, to 2021, we added about 8,000 units to, to a total of 28,000 units that were uh, built in uh, New York City. And uh, then it's, things slowed down when the whole... Um, when the, the Fed started increasing the interest rates, everything slowed down. The entire cycle slowed down. People, people couldn't buy, people couldn't sell for the same reasons that, that you said. And it's, uh, it's unfortunate because the price of commodities have come down. You know, lumber, as you remember, was uh, at an all-time high just about a, you know, uh, 14, 15 months ago. And now it's uh, dropped down about 70, 80%. So the cost of building has come down but uh, because of where we are with the Fed and the interest rates, uh, there's just no incentive to build right now. And you know that, uh, especially in New York City, I mean, as a developer and owner, you know that it's, um, the incentives are even less because we have billion-dollar projects that are being proposed even under these terms, but you have a, a city council uh, that has way too much control and they are not allowing, um, you know, some major, major projects. I'm talking about billion-dollar projects in boroughs that could really use it, in neighborhoods that could really use it, in Harlem, in, uh, uh, you know, in parts of Queens. And they've been uh, shut down, and they're being challenged because they expect the developer uh, to give, you know, roughly 50% of the project for affordable housing. Affordable housing is very important in the city. It's part of the fabric of the city. It's important to have it. But, um, you know, when you ask people uh, to pay what they have to pay for land, uh, for construction costs, for, uh, you know, interest, and then they're supposed to make that work along with 50 percent or 60 percent in affordable housing or whatever it is, it's just not feasible. It's not doable. I mean, uh, you know, some of the stuff that you've built, uh, you know, you have to do 70, 30 or 80, 20. Uh, you know, even to make those work, it's challenging. The burden all of a sudden becomes on the people who can afford to pay rents because the, you know, the rents that you take away, uh, you, you reduce for the affordable housing. Obviously, you, you still have to make a dollar. You're a businessman uh, or any developer who's proposing a project. And uh, that challenge becomes, uh, you know, bigger and bigger. A lot of, a lot of cities have, uh, have been destroyed. Uh, San Francisco, I understand, is, is a vast wasteland. Uh, Detroit is trying to make it come back. Uh, but uh, there's a lot of our cities are becoming vast wastelands. New York City, New York State, I understand, in the last 24 months have lost 484,000 taxpayers. That's a lot of people. Yeah, yeah but, you know, you mentioned Detroit. Detroit, you know, once you lose the city, it takes a long time for the cycle to come back around. It takes a long time for the people to be like, no, drugs are bad. Cops are good. We need this. So it takes a long time for that change to take place. Uh, you know, Detroit's been at it for almost 35 years, and they're still nowhere. I mean, like, once you lose it, it's not going to come back in our lifetime, unfortunately. So that, that's why we have to fight for it. Uh, you know, I've never been so active as I am because I, I can really see it. I can really see it. When I go to these other cities, I can see us losing our city. And it, it just breaks my heart because I love this place. It's the most unique place in the world. I've traveled the world. There's no place like New York. And uh, it's so important to fight for it and to fight for what you think is important for the city. 
Uh, Amir, uh, thank you very much. Uh, uh, we were going to, you know, our, our time limit is up for today, but I want to talk to you again on, on Florida, and I want to talk to you about Texas, and I want to talk to you about uh, other items. Uh, but uh, this is a great education for the people of New York uh, to, to understand. And um, uh, you're doing a I appreciate great you, John. Anytime, anytime you want to chat, I'm happy to talk. Thank, thank you, you so much and for having if, me. If one of our listeners wants to subscribe to The Real Deal, how do they do it? They just go to therealdeal.com and, uh, you know, they get five articles for free. But then after that, they have to pay. We, you know, I And they can follow us on Instagram and Facebook and all that stuff as well. And uh, that's The Real Deal, the Bible of the real estate industry. Thank you so much, Amir. And we'll catch up again real soon. With us today is uh, Zach Williams, uh, the star reporter for the New York Post for Albany. And uh, Zach, good morning on a Sunday morning. Give us an update. What's going on? Well, thanks for having me, John. I might describe it as legislative purgatory this week. You know, we two big issues still lay in limbo. One of them is the governor's nomination for chief judge of the Court of Appeals. You might recall that the state Senate Judiciary Committee rejected the nomination of centrist judge Hector LaSalle last week. But the governor has yet to decide what she's going to do about it. She could sue. She could withdraw the nomination, give up. She says she... Still considering her options, hasn't decided what to do. Now, on the second front, uh, even more monumentally important is the state budget. You know, there's a 220 some odd billion dollar document. Now, the governor hinted at a lot of her big proposals in the state of the state address she gave on January 10th. But she's going to wait until next Monday, February 1st, to actually release her budget bills and give a speech that kind of gets into a lot of the nitty gritty details, not least her plan to address rising crime. You know, she has suggested uh, overhauling some of these controversial uh, limits on cash bail, as well as some other measures um, and a very controversial housing plan in the suburbs. You know, we're hearing already officials saying that she wants to undermine local control. But we got to wait until those budget bills until we can see in black and white um, what exactly she is proposing. And then the real legislative session really kicks off uh, ahead of that April 1st budget deadline. Zach, one of our hosts at WABC's former governor, David Patterson, and he has reiterated the fact that the, a governor has a lot of power in Albany on the budget. And if she puts her foot down on bail and on other important items to the city of New York and the state, uh, then maybe uh, there'll be some capitulation. Any, any gut feeling? You know, the governor has made it clear that in some form, whether window dressing or real substance, she is going to address all this controversy about bail and rising crime in one way or another. You might recall just all the criticism she got on the campaign trail when she was running against Lee Zeldin. But that said, you know, we, you know, there's a lot of things that any governor wants to do in their state of state. And some of them are aspirational and some of them are very pragmatic. Now, the governor, you know, she came into office, first woman to ever win a full four-year term in office. Yeah, it was a close, closer than expected against Lee Zeldin, but it was still six points, you know, definitive enough. And somehow, she spent an enormous amount of her political capital on this LaSalle nomination. And, you know, it's really hard to look one month later and say that she just has leverage over state lawmakers like she used to. You know, many of the same ones that she wants to, you know, kind of, uh, you know, stretch themselves a, li a little bit, get outside their 
their comfort zone, you know, the uh, mostly New York City progressives, you know, these are the same people she was fighting with LaSalle over. You know, what favor do they owe her at this point? She just made them waste weeks of their time when it was clear this guy wasn't going to pass. But that said, the LaSalle nomination is not over yet. Now, the governor could maybe throw it into budget negotiations, whether or not, it, you know, it wouldn't officially be part of a budget. It is a judicial nomination. But she could say, hey, if you help, if you do this, if if, if you, uh, you know, we're, if, if you don't hold the vote on the sound, the state Senate floor, you know, you're not going to get this. That's a lot. You know, and then we got this housing plan. So, you know, there's a there's a lot of moving parts here. Governors typically focus on a few key issues. You know, last year, Hochul devoted a lot of her political capital to a last minute effort on bail. Um, you know, in past years, Andrew Cuomo, you know, pushed congestion pricing hard or or this or that. And, you know, the governor has fights right now on at least three major fronts, you know, public safety, housing and still this judicial nomination. And it's really hard to see her just having um, enough um, influence over the state legislature to get all three done, given the the plethora of opposition from the right, the left, on this and that. You know, it's not easy being governor. And I don't think this governor is in a particularly great situation after this disastrous nomination has really soured a relationship with the state senate uh, mayor adams's speech uh, the other day uh, on the state of the city uh reiterated the fact that if we put away 1700 repeat violent criminals the city will be a better place to live in and uh uh Governor Hochul gave a speech that I attended at the New York City Partnership on Thursday uh, that said that uh, uh, that she's going to empower, give more power back to the judges. Well, the you know, I think the matter of judicial discretion comes back to something that the governor said in her state of the state address. It was in the accompanying booklet that outlines all these policies. But she mentioned she wanted to revisit the least restrictive condition standard. This was a, a, a legal standard um, passed along with bail reform in 2019 that basically requires judges to give people pretrial the least restrictive conditions given, um, you know, the crime that they've been charged with, their criminal background, et cetera, et cetera. Now, this often results in kind of strange situations that you read it in papers like the New York Post, where maybe you have someone accused of a crime that's bail eligible, but the circumstances of their case um, at large require the judge to maybe uh, release them with an ankle bracelet or on their own reconnaissance or, you know, whatever it is, but something that's not being held on bail because they're legally required to get the least restrictive condition. This is at the heart of bail reform. The governor has said she wants to remove it for serious offenses. Does that mean murder or shoplifting or something in between? I don't know. We're going to find out in these budget bills. Something I did want to mention that is one area of potential agreement, if there can be agreement at all on this crazy capital between Republicans, Democrats, left, right, et cetera, mental health funding. You know, that was one issue. When she brought up $1 billion of mental health funding, there was a standing ovation both sides of the aisle because there's a lot of intersection across all these constituencies. You know, when we talk about mental health, uh, we're not just talking about, you know, people with, with schizophrenia or something like that. We're also talking about people who uh, have substance abuse problems. And I don't know if you saw, but there was a very thought-provoking story in New York Magazine, I believe, uh, last week, where the reporter mentioned that based on his interviews with lots and lots of so-called boosters, these are the people that professionally shoplift for a living and then have stuff like fenced on eBay and whatnot, 
And he mentioned the overwhelming percentage of these folks are drug addicts who are seeking to, you know, feed their habit. It makes a lot of sense. Not the best career path. And, you know, you can see what, you know, and then they have these fencers that, that, you know, take advantage of the whole situation. And everyone's kind of a part of it because, you know, people buy stuff on eBay, think it's a good price. And lo and behold, it maybe was shoplifted from New York City by a drug addict. Now, that $1 billion, you know, we're going to find out details. Where is that money going to go for? Is it going to go for, you know, high schoolers recovering from uh, mental health issues in the pandemic? Is it going to combat drug abuse? Is it going to do all sorts of things? I think a lot of folks, though, want to see it somehow tie in again with this surge in crime. You know, um, people have hearts. Uh, people that, you know, are, are shoplifters and that type of thing. Many of these repeat offenders you mentioned, you know, arrested dozens and dozens of times, you know, a couple of weeks at Rikers ain't going to cut it. You know, these people need real rehab. It's not easy. It's not cheap. But the governor put $1 billion on the table, and that could, and could make a big dent in uh, some of these repeat offenders. Agreed. Uh, and, uh, Zach, thank you for your input, and, and thank you for your update to all uh, Americans and all New Yorkers. Uh, and uh, we'll catch up maybe next week and see uh, what the heck is going on uh, when those dates uh, for the governor are starting to get closer. Sounds great. Real pleasure. Thank you for being with us for the Cats Roundtable Local Edition, the number one show on Sunday mornings in New York. Keep listening to us for the Cats Roundtable National Edition between 9 o'clock and 10 o'clock. So we'll be back to you in a few minutes after the news.